Well, this afternoon in our walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, we're still in part four of looking, I mean, sorry, in the section of Jesus, uh, the greater sacrifice in part four of that particular section. Uh, We're getting into chapter 10 now, which after uh, verse uh, 18, which ends this current section, uh, sometimes gets into some other tricky territory that um, has caused much debate, but we'll be there in a, sometime in the next couple of months. Today we're going to be in the first four verses of chapter 10. Well, let's read for the sake of context, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scrolls of the book. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. Let us pray. Father, it is a wonderful thing to have your word laid before us. To be able to hear and to read the words you've given to us. To hear through these words your voice. We pray, O Father, that we would give heed to your voice. That we might walk thereby by the work of your spirit. We ask, O Father, that your word would increase and strengthen our faith. We pray, O Father, that your spirit would 
Open up our minds and hearts to what you wish for each of us to see and to receive. We ask our Father that you would give us each from your word a clear revelation of who Christ is. And our Father, we pray that you would that you would guide this preacher, one who is a fellow needy sinner, saved by grace, that he might declare that which is true. So chain him to the text of your word that he might freely declare that truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few messages in the book of Hebrews, uh, we've been seeing the writer of Hebrews go through this cycle in which he um, restates the same thing several times, but from a different angle when it comes to Christ being the greater sacrifice. We've seen in the last couple of messages now that the sacrifice that Jesus offered was not only a better sacrifice, it was a better sacrifice to purify a better temple. For the previous temple, being built by human hands and having been built from creation of the elements of creation that were affected by the fall of mankind, remember, It's not just humanity that was affected by our rebellion in the garden, but all of creation has been affected for the vice region of creation rebelled against God and that flowed downstream such that the entirety of creation is affected by our rebellion. And so thus, those things of which the temple was built, though they were by visible eye meeting a certain standard, were ultimately affected by sin. And the temple, that Old Testament temple, could not be the place where true forgiveness and removal of sins occurred. We've seen how the priest was insufficient. The priesthood was insufficient because the high priest himself was beset with sin and he had to offer sacrifice for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. And thus, he could not present a pure sacrifice. We saw that the first and second temples, that is the one that Solomon built and the one that was built during the, uh, <clears throat> after the exile, even after purification, could not atone for sins. And we saw once again the importance of the blood sacrifice. Remember, when we look through the, script, the Hebrew scriptures, we see the very importance of the shedding of the blood of, sac- of animals that are being sacrificed. What is it that we see when we think, what is it that we think of when we think of blood? If I were to happen upon, um, say, a street corner, and there's police lines, and I see that there's a pool of blood there, What can I assume happened? Somebody probably died. And so blood is indicating death. Something has to die because of sin. 
But as we're going to see today, the death of those goats and bulls and lambs and sheep could not atone for sin. Death is the wages of sin, both in terms of our life in this age and in terms of eternal death through eternal condemnation and eternal torment for our sins. We also have seen that his sacrifice is once for all. It is not done over and over and over again. And for those who would seek to present Christ's sacrifice over and over again, it is a fallacy of highest proportions. Remember, the high priest entered the temple every year to offer the sacrifice. Whenever he returned, it was a testimony that the sacrifice had been accepted. And the people would wait eagerly for the high priest to come out of that Holy of Holies, for it testified to this, the sacrifice was accepted. And we see that as a parallel to Jesus. He died once for sin, and he is returning. He's not returning with regards to sin, but with regards to a final rescue of his people. And the fact that he is returning, the fact that he, after his death upon the cross, rose from the dead, showed his sacrifice was accepted, and he's returning for us. But not to do away with sin in terms of our sin, but to come and rescue those whom he has redeemed and bring to us our final and complete salvation, which is secured and guaranteed by his work and by his work alone. So now we see here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews returning to the same idea of the insufficiency of the law and the old covenant to bring about redemption. We've seen that the law is insufficient even to the point where it's spoken of as useless to affect perfection and cleansing of the conscience. The law, whether it would be the ceremonies of the <clears throat> the ceremonies of the ceremonial or religious law, or whether it would be even the, more, the abiding eternal moral law itself is insufficient to bring about redemption because of the sinfulness of people. We've seen that the repeated sacrifices are only of value for a temporal and fleshly nature, nature. As we saw, they are good for the flesh, but not for something that is spiritual and of eternal nature. And it does not affect those that did not affect anything eternal or spiritual, just for the things that for life in the land. We live by faith for that which we do not see. We look for a city that is yet to come as we don't have a lasting city here. And so when we turn to chapter 10, we see the, the, there's a, a first assertion here in chapter 10, which really is the main idea of these first four verses, which it says, for, for, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So the law has a shadow of those good things. But the main idea is here is that this shadow, which the law has, is unable ever to perfect perfect those who draw 
near. Ever. It cannot. It is impossible for this shadow or this sketch, we're going to get into that language in just a moment, to bring about perfection and the removal of sins, the forgiveness of sins, such that it is no, they no longer stand against us in terms of our relation to God. They cannot remove, it cannot remove the guilt of sin. We see the first, the first basic idea of that is because of what he describes them as. They are a shadow of the real thing. We first of all see that the law has a shadow. What do we mean by a shadow? We've talked about this before. But on a sunny day, which we get a few of around here, some years more than others like this year, you can stand outside on a sunny day and your form will cast a shadow. And depending on where you're standing in relationship to the where the sun is, you might look like a six-inch tall thing. Or you might look like you're 10, 10 or 15 feet tall. It's an imperfect representation of you. But it still testifies that there's something that, is being, that, this, is, that, the, that this shadow is speaking of. Another way of uh, uh, thinking of that, whether it would be a giant shadow of a small thing or sometimes as a small shadow of a giant thing. Maybe you've seen the uh, trope in, um, in the trope in a show or something where people are walking in a dark area that's dimly lit and around the corner they see this giant shadow coming out and they think, oh no, this is a giant beast. And then they see the thing and it's a little tiny bug. It was an imperfect representation. Another way of understanding this is like a sketch or a rough outline of what will at some point be a magnificent painting. My wife likes to paint. She likes to do watercolor. I like to paint as well. I like to do oil. I had to, couldn't remember the term for a moment there. I like to do oil painting. She's far better than I am. I mean, she went to school for it. So, but whenever a painter, especially with something intricate like a portrait, uh, begins, they will put on the canvas or whatever thing they're using, take a pencil and sketch out a rough form of what they're going to paint. And oftentimes that pencil sketch doesn't look like much, but that pencil sketch guides what's going to be painted. Or maybe sometimes they'll lay out lines to indicate like in a landscape, might lay out a line across here and a line across here to show the background, the midground, and the foreground. And that guides the painting. But those are but sketches. They don't really show the whole painting. Maybe you've watched, I grew up as a child, uh, uh, watching a, a, a very mild-mannered, uh, painter occasionally uh, by the name of Bob Ross. You may have seen him and looked, seen him on video and he likes to paint the happy trees. But if you watch what he does, he will uh, begin with just slabbing color on the screen. Uh, I mean, on the, on the canvas. And then a little bit over here and a little over there. And it's not making sense of what it's going to be. And then by the time he's done, 
it'll be this beautiful mountain scene. Calvin says of this shadow or this sketch. Now he says that they were like the rough outlines which are the foreshadowing of the living picture. And so this shadow, which is these sacrifices that the law has, they're kind of a, they portray for us a sketch, a rough sketch of something greater that's going to come. But they are not the final thing. They aren't the real thing. They testify of the real thing. Another way of speaking of this is that they are a living metaphor. A living metaphor. An example of a metaphor. Yesterday, of course, was Saturday, which for people who like watching college football is the day to watch college football. And some will see someone who's a very powerful player like a big a big a guy who makes big tackles and they'll use a metaphor say he's a beast he's not actually a beast but it's a way of describing him that's a metaphor but the mosaic law has a shadow or sketch that points to the real thing it's a shadow of the coming good things this isn't the only place in the new testament Hebrews is not the only place in the scriptures where this language of shadow appears. Colossians chapter 2, verse, verse, uh, in verse 17, this actually goes back a little bit further. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or of Sabbaths. For these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, you see, the, the law has a number of shadows. Even the word Sabbath there, it's plural. Um, all the others are singular, indicating that while the, while the substance of the Sabbath would continue as part of the Ten Commandments, its particular implementation as part of the Mosaic law was ceremonial. But the substance of it, the one day a week as such, continues. But yet, all of these things are as but shadows. He calls the the ceremonies of the law here a shadow or sketch of the things coming. The real thing being Jesus Christ. The very fact that they were continually offered, that is, these sacrifices were continually offered, testifies to their temporary nature. We can see in a book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. If you want to read that at some point. About how these sacrifices were to be carried out and the customary nature of them. It's speaking of the fact in Leviticus 17 about um, where they're to be offered. That they're not just to be offered in the field where the person happens to find their uh, find their animal to be sacrificed, they actually have to be brought to the temple. But he speaks of these in a, in, in a customary nature. And as they're repeated over and over and over and over again. And we've talked about the Day of Atonement, which happened every year. Every year the Day of Atonement would happen. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies 
and offer that sacrifice for the sins of the people and himself. And this happened annually, every year. These sketches outline or foreshadow the coming of Christ. They foreshadow, that's another literary device, foreshadowing, which is using, uh, using words or items or things in a particular story to say, hey, there's something else coming. And they foreshadow the coming of Christ. They tell of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. <clears throat> This is the basis of all that God has been promising throughout the scripture. Calvin says, the writer has established the difference between the law and the gospel. But the former has foreshadowed in elementary and sketchy outline what today has been expressed in living and graphically printed color. Because Christ has come, because Christ has lived, because Christ has died, because Christ has risen and he is coming again. I used to have this video on a VHS tape. But, uh, that tape got eaten by the VHS machine. Now, some of you might be too young to know what a VHS machine is or known the, the terror of a tape player or a VHS player eating your tape. But thankfully, this is, not back, this is now on the, on the Internet and we can see this video, and the video is called E-Tau, E-E-T-A-O-W. And it's the story of a couple of missionaries, a married couple, who were farmers in Pennsylvania who went to Papua New Guinea. And they told the story of the Bible to a people who hadn't had it. They spent several years learning language and developing life among them and building trust with the people. And then they began telling the story of the scriptures and showing how and going through the sacrifices and how all these things testify in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that there's a seed of the woman coming who's going to crush the serpent's head. They acted out in dramatic fashion and just, or just told the story in different ways. But then when they told the story of Jesus, when they saw that he was crucified on the cross, they were absolutely devastated. They didn't know what to happen. And then rejoiced when he rose from the dead. And then they showed what all, they talked about what all of this meant. And you can see this video, you can see on the video, the people testifying to the fact that they have now believed this and know that they're forgiven of their sins and over and over and then it was announced if you believe this your sins are gone and they are forgiven and the whole village erupted into celebration those sacrifices told the story of what was to come though they themselves didn't do that which was to come You see, we now live in the kingdom of Christ by faith in that Christ. And we now have a vivid image of the good things that have come to us. And we have a vivid image of what's still to come to us. A heavenly city of which we are that city for which we wait as we don't have a lasting city in this age and in this world. Now as a note, as it says, the law has a shadow. 
a shadow that we might say is fleeting. The shadows, I'm sorry, the shadows or sketches are bound up in the religious nature of the law. The religious ceremonies are clearly a shadow. That is the sacrifices, the whole priesthood, and everything related to the religious life of Israel. Israel was also a commonwealth, that's a country, within a unique covenant with God that no other country on the face of the earth then or now is in. And they had judicial and civil laws tied specifically to them in their covenant context. They preserved the people who were to bring Messiah. But this gracious covenant, this new covenant in Christ Jesus has not been made with any particular nation state. It is with a people who are a heavenly nation unto themselves, the church of Jesus Christ. Any transfer of those civil laws are found not in the practices of nation states, but in the practices of the church, such as church discipline. In the form of excommunication, not in terms of stoning people and such. Those laws at times included allowance for regulation, and also those civil laws, they included allowance for regulation of things that are repugnant to God's law, such as marriage to more than one woman, such as, the deny, such as denying someone their agency and attacking the image of God by means of taking their personage from them through enslaving them. Here, Exodus 21, 7 through 10. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for a son, he shall deal with her as as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Those things that happen to, um, to the, those potential things that might happen are, are repugnant to God's law, taking on another wife, as well as selling a daughter into slavery. But these are recognizing that this Old Testament law provided regulation for, the, for these things to reduce harm to those affected. It's a realistic dealing with how society operated. The civil law regulated, but did not command those things. The moral law makes clear what is right and is wrong. And even that, the civil law is passing and tied to that commonwealth. Even that is a shadow. Donald Guthrie says there is also enshrined in the law what is more permanent. That more permanent thing is the abiding and eternal moral law that is a reflection of God according to his nature. We call that the Ten Commandments and all their manifestations and implications throughout Scripture. So here we see that in the law, the only thing that abides is those Ten Commandments. Everything else is passing because they're shadows, or they were there to preserve the people who would bring Messiah. 
And then now we see in verse 2 that at these, another reason why they cannot do that which only Christ could do is if these sacrifices were of anything other than a temporal and sketchy nature, they wouldn't be a continual offering. That is, if they actually did the thing to which they pointed, they wouldn't have to be done over and over again. As it says, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers have once been having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. You see, because after the sacrifice happens, a consciousness of sin remains. The sacrifice needs to be offered again. Because of the fact that it was offered again every year, it said this, God was not satisfied with the sacrifice and guilt remains. The worshiper, apart from God's grace, could not find eternal atonement for sin by means of those sacrifices. Rather, it was only found by looking to what those sacrifices testified. And only in that could one find justification and the removal of the guilt of sin. Is believing the God who would send the Redeemer. So we'll see in a moment in verse 3, the very repetition of these sacrifices keeps the consciousness of sin before the people. They provided a cleansing of sins since the last offering solely for the purpose of life in the land. But the root cause, the root cause, sin itself, our rebellion in the garden and our rebellion that flows from that is not dealt with by those sacrifices. No sacrifice you or I could make can deal with that. There is no number of prayers that we could offer. There is no number of works that we could do. There is no number of ritual cleansings that we could do that could deal with that root cause, our rebellion in the garden and our rebellion that flows from that. And the guilt that flows from that. No number of things that we could do can undo those things. Remember in chapter 9, verses 25 through 28. Speaking of the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ died once for sins. And he's returning. And we see that there is no other sacrifice. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can say 
Praise God that there is no more sacrifices. We are called to offer, sac- offer, make offerings, for example, sacrificially, and to offer our lives as a sacrifice unto Him. But that is but as a matter of a, of a response of thankfulness and gratitude to what He has done, not as a matter of getting something out of God. God cannot and will not be manipulated. And if we think we can manipulate him into something, we probably have a very interesting answer coming to us. They're not blotted out by those sacrifices. Sins, our rebellion, is only blotted out by the sacrifice of Christ. Paul in Romans 3, 21 through 25 states that the death of Christ is retroactive to those of faith prior to his coming. That is, the death of Christ is the reason believers before he came would be redeemed. People were not without recourse. It is by, it is by faith in the one true God, just as Abraham was justified by faith. For here are the words of Romans three twenty one through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, that is, as a sacrifice. And he says, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. For he did not send to hell those who were believers who trusted God truly before Christ came. But their sins still had to be dealt with. And their sins were dealt with by the death of Christ. Remember, God exists outside of time. He's not bound by time. So his, he views all of that from a timeless perspective. The death of Christ is the only sacrifice to be offered for sin. So thus there is no longer any repeated sacrifice to be offered to atone for sin and to cleanse our conscience. It's complete. You say, but what if our conscience is accusing us? What if our conscience is aware of sin? Must I make atonement for that sin? Must I do something to undo that sin? You can't go back and undo what you did. What you you do is you look to Christ. And we run to Christ who is the one who made sacrifice for our sin. And as Martin Luther said, it's one of my favorite quotes. And you will not stop hearing it from me. He says, when the despot, he's a despot too, but when the devil whispers in your ear and he says you're too full of sin and you deserve death and hell, he said, you say to the devil, I admit that I deserve death and hell and that I'm too full of sin. 
But what of it? For I know one, Jesus Christ, Son of, Do- Son of God, who made satisfaction for my sins, and where he is there, I shall be also. In any sort of religious system, even in the name of Christianity, that says we need to repeatedly offer the sacrifice in order to find redemption from sins, to find forgiveness of sins, is dead wrong and is an affront to the gospel. There are those in some, uh, in, for example, in Roman Catholicism, will go to the priest and confess sin, and the priest will say, do ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys, and your, and, I can, and your sin will be forgiven. Or in Martin Luther's time, they would buy indulgences. And by that buying of indulgence, by that sacrificial gift, you could buy forgiveness of sins for yourselves. Your, they would, uh, one particular seller of them called it your raft, your passport to heaven. By that sacrifice, you could get it for yourself or for your loved one. Or buy somebody, or or spring somebody out of purgatory, which doesn't exist. Luther again told people when they were saying, "But I should spend my money and I I I wish to buy one of these." He would say, "He said, save your money to feed your children. Trust in God's love." Or if we view the communion as us offering a sacrifice in order to atone for our sins, whether we're representing Christ's sacrifice or we are making a sacrifice so God will look favorably upon us, we have it wrong. Dead wrong. This is important to keep in mind when we get to later sections of Hebrews 10 where we hear language that the no sacrifice for sin remains If we depart from that way, for there's no atonement outside of Christ at all that is possible. What these sacrifices do provide, we see in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. What did they do? They said there's this thing called sin and it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. The very pull that people have to try to atone for their sins in different ways testifies to this. Sin has to be dealt with. But Christ alone dealt with those sins. Every year that sacrifice would come up. And what did it say? It said, you are a sinner. And a death must happen for there to be removal of sin. The next year, what does it say? It says the very same thing. That's what the law does. The law, the law, the first thing the law does for us is it serves as a mirror. Or as we say in Texas, a mirror. It serves as a mirror to declare to us our sinfulness. The law does not serve first and foremost as a filter through which we look and get to say, yeah, they're pretty bad. 
It points back at us and says, you're, I'm pretty bad. It has other functions in the life of the believer. But that is the first function. Our own articles of faith in chapter 7, paragraph 3, says, says that much. The old covenant, being that covenant instituted at Sinai through Moses, did in no way alter this promise of salvation, either by change or addition, but rather by exposing man's unrighteousness, pointed to the need for God's gracious provision of redemption and salvation through his appointed Savior. Moreover, the old covenant was not itself redemptive and did not provide a means of salvation, but only described the righteousness that is of the law. And so the old covenant described the righteousness the law requires and shows that there is a need for salvation. The sacrifices show this as has been stated. Sin demands death. Sin demands being cast out. Sin requires sacrifice. That's the only thing that will undo sin. But if they require sacrifice... Why is it that the blood of bulls and goats aren't enough? He says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He makes that statement outright. If the blood of bulls and goats testified to the blood of Christ, why were they not, they were not sufficient? Why, we might ask. Well, first I must ask, let us go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Was it a bull or a goat that sinned in the garden? No, it was not a bull or a goat that sinned in the garden. It was man. Adam sinned in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. As we mentioned earlier, it affected everything downstream, which is everything else in creation in the earth, since we're, we are the uh, vice regent of creation. But it is man that sinned in the garden. What is man? Man is the pinnacle of God's creation, the pinnacle of life, and the pinnacle of God's love. When we look at creation in Genesis 1, and each day he created different things. And he got to creating the birds and the beasts and the swimming things. But he never said this of them. In my image they have been made. But in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, he said that of mankind. He said that of Adam and his wife Eve. They were created in his image. You see, no lesser creature can atone for what man has done. No lesser creature can die in the stead of mankind to remove our sin or to perfect us or to cleanse our conscience. It requires a man, but not just any man. It requires a fit sacrifice 
It was not just any bull or goat or lamb that would be acceptable as a sacrifice. It had to be one in which there was no spot or blemish. If anyone spends enough time with animals, one will know it's actually impossible, to my knowledge, in my own reading of it, for there to be a purely spotless animal. Even the whitest of white cats is going to have a little black hair somewhere. It had to be without blemish. But yet, those animals are not the ones who sinned. That without spot or blemish testifies of something else. It has to be a sacrifice that is fit. And the priests could not be the sacrifice because they had to sacrifice for themselves. It required an absolutely spotless and pure sacrifice. Genesis 3.15 is part of the curse. Remember, Adam and Eve had sinned. And they, after they sinned, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid. And God discovered them. And he began pronouncing the curses into the serpent. One of the things he said in Genesis 3 verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall or he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a going, there is a descendant of Eve, someone of the seed of the woman, who is going to crush the head serpent's head. And all throughout Scripture, we see people who are heroes of the, who are heroes in the life of Israel. But each one of them is full of sin and unable to be that sacrifice. Until Jesus, Jesus never sinned. You see, we have, we have a problem of being represented by a sinful man, Adam, one who sinned. We need a better representative to stand for us. Adam's being our representative. When he sinned, it means we sinned. But listen to the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see in Romans 5, we have a tale, not of two cities, but we have a tale of two Adams. One lesser Adam and one final Adam. The first Adam and the final Adam. The first Adam, by his rebellion, death reigned and spread to all humanity. But those who are represented by Christ Jesus, united to him by faith, to to them is life. To them is righteousness. To them is eternal life. Because he was that sacrifice. This is another statement, if you will, in verse 4, that it is not bulls and goats that we need, but a better Adam that we need, a better representative. And Jesus is that better representative for us. See, those goats and bulls are not of the seed of the woman and thus are not fit as sacrifices to provide atonement for our rebellion there at the beginning and for the continuing rebellion that flows from that. And so, brothers and sisters, in closing, we have set out before us once again the immeasurable superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can think of something as great and as wonderful, Christ is far better. If you can think that you're, if we think we're making a pretty big sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice is far greater and far better. And oh, how often, my brothers and sisters, do we take our eyes off of that, off of the superior, superior Christ for the specter of earthly gain? It is so easy so to do. Which is why we need continual reminder, as we'll see in a few weeks later on. In chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. How often do we think that we can better what Christ did for us? We may think to ourselves, I've never thought that. And I have one word to say to us when we think that. We're lying through our teeth. We often think of ourselves as being able to add to Christ, which is why we need Christ. Now, how often do we try to bargain with God? That is to say, Lord, if, if, if you'll just do this for me, I'll make sure that I do this and this and this and this. What are we doing there? We're trying to make a sacrifice to appease God and to gain favor with him. There's only one Sacrifice by which we have favor with God. There's only one one reason by which he hears us, and that's because of the infinite merits of Christ. No, we don't come to him bargaining, but we come to him naked with regards to our own merit, but clothed in the infinite and beautiful garments of the merits of Jesus Christ. Nor was we think of the sacrifices to which we are called, 
from the life he has given us as giving us any sort of special favor with God. They don't. We sometimes are driven by this idea that in order to motivate us to do good things, we need to be given a carrot on a stick. The gospel doesn't work that way. We seek to serve him simply because he's given us a new heart. And it simply is a matter of expressing thanksgiving to him, not to return the favor. We can never return that favor. But as a matter of simply expressing gratitude. Not in order to get something out of God. If when once we start thinking that is the moment we're starting to offer other sacrifices. We must think in terms of this, of what the sacrifice of Christ testifies to us. And I've said this before. And if you wish to see it, I have a picture of it. One thing that folks do when they do mission, go on mission sometimes into certain areas it's a, is we, I, I personally like to visit the graves, if I'm near the grave, of someone who was a well-known figure in church history. In 2002, I got to go to Kolkata. It used to be called Calcutta. And before that, it was called Kolkata. And I got to visit the church William Carey founded. And, we were ta- and I got to preach there too. But we were taken to the place where he was buried, to his gravesite. And I have a picture of his grave. And it has his name. And if you don't know who William Carey is, he's a man who, trans- who uh, a, sh- a simple shoe cobbler who, while he was cobbling shoes, taught himself Greek, Hebrew, and Hindi, which is the national language of India, and decided he wanted to be a missionary. And he was also pastoring as well. And he ended up going to India, thinking he was going to plant a church and preach, realized that he was better equipped to translate the Bible. That's what he did. He translated the Bible, complete Bible, into seven tongues and portions of it into 30-some-odd other languages. A simple shoe cobbler. And on his grave, this is what it says. A wretched, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. And that is what the sacrifice of Christ testifies to us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that when we think about it truly, it dashes all sense of pride and self-entitlement and dashes any sense in which, our, in which the things we do are of any merit. And we thank you that he completed the work. And we pray, our Father, we would rest secure in that. We pray these things, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen.